Thank you for listening to this podcast from Renew San Diego, a church for the good of all our neighbors in North Park, San Diego. If you're ever in the area on Sunday mornings, we'd love to welcome you. More information at renewsandiego.org. Share with a friend. See you soon. The gospel reading today comes from the gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verses 21 through 28. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus entered the synagogue and taught. They were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority, not as the scribes. Just then there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying with a loud voice, came out of him. They were all amazed, and they kept on asking one another, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. At once his fame began to spread throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment now for silent reflection. Gracious God, as we come right now to this moment, silent and reflective, we come to this moment from a variety of experiences this week, from various perspectives and worldviews, with different hopes and dreams, different fears and anxieties. We come to this very moment, some of us hopeful, joyful, others of us in despair. Some of us feeling connected, in good relationship with others, thankful for community. Others of us come to this moment alone, or angry, or bitter, or cynical. We come to this moment believing and trusting, and doubtful and worrying. Most of us a mixture of so many of these attributes. But however we find ourselves right now, help us to see that we have far more in common than we realize. On one hand, each of us is created in your image and likeness, bearing dignity and worth and honor and nobility. And at the same time, each of us is fractured and broken. In other words, we're a beautiful mess. And at the same time, you see us in all our complexity and contradictions, and your response is to love us and move toward us in the person and work of your Son, Jesus Christ. And so we pray now that you would teach us by the power of your Holy Spirit. Open our minds to your truth, our hearts to your love, and our lives to your grace. And send us out to you be your very agents of renewal wherever we go. We pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, here we are, friends, on the last day of January 2021. It is one twelfth completed. And this is a long month. It has 31 days. And I'm a nerd, and sometimes I go back and look at what happened on this day in history, or in this case, I like to do a month in review. And it was in January of 2009 
when a man named Captain Sully Sullenberger took us all by surprise and delight when he captained United Airways flight uh, to land on the Hudson after it had struck a flock of Canadian geese, saving the lives of all 155 people on board. He used his experience, he used his education, he used his training, and he channeled it all through his authority. And when it all came down to what he did next, he stayed committed and used his authority to safely land that airplane on water, saving 155 lives. It's a stark contrast to another captain. Three years later, in January of 2012, Captain Francesco Chettino, on the ship Costa Concordia, the cruise ship that was operating, that he struck aground, and as it was listing and sinking with over 4,000 souls on board, some of which perished in the disaster, he shirked his authority. He fled the scene. He abandoned ship. Later, when he was brought up on charges, I believe he's still incarcerated to this day, he was brought up on charges to account for why he abandoned ship in its moment of need. And he said he tripped and fell into a lifeboat as it was underway. Apparently, if you ever get caught in that situation, that's not a good defense. But we look at that and we get cynical and bitter and jaded. We say, whatever he gets, he has coming to him because he abused his authority. He used his authority to save his own skin at the peril of others. You know, this last month, we have seen the tale of authority in the presidency, in the outgoing president who now is facing to be, um, you know, for his, for his impeachment trial to now be uh, adjudicated in the Senate. And the charge is that he used his authority to incite an insurrection. But with the incoming president, President, president Biden also is under scrutiny now, even as one of the most recent op-ed columns in the New York Times says, President Biden, enough with the executive orders. Quit working through your raw power and authority and get some bipartisanship going through the Congress. Because we look at authority and we say, we know how people in power use it. They use it to advance their own agenda. They use it to save their own skin. They use it to help themselves while they push other people down. And so we are not neutral when it comes to the idea of authority. We come to this passage, which really, I know the really bright and brilliant and loud part of it is that Jesus is having this battle with some sort of demonic, unclean spirit. I know some of you, I almost lost you right there. You said, look, this is the 21st century. We have modern medicine. We understand these things. We don't need to blame everything on some sort of an evil spirit. You know, we will get there. I hear you. Don't worry. We'll get there. But I don't want you to lose the fact that this passage begins and ends with authority. At first, the people are marveling over the authority that Jesus has because his words teach with authority, not like the scribes. And at the end, the people are marveling over Jesus' authority because he has authority even over, apparently, the spiritual world and the brokenness of our lives. He has authority like no one's ever seen. And so you come to this passage and you see Jesus' authority. And for some of us, this is why you've stood far off, maybe from organized religion, because you've seen authority abused. Uh, maybe you just kind of keep the idea of God at arm's length, even as a nice idea uh, or something that can kind of make you feel better, but you don't want to get too involved because it is terrifying to think that there might be a God who actually has authority over your life. That's terrifying for all of us. And so we project onto him and say, there, you must just be like all the others. 
You know, you must be just like all the others. I can't trust your authority. And Mark, the gospel writer, gives us a glimpse today and throughout his gospel that Jesus does have authority, but it's a unique authority unlike any others. It's unparalleled in its power and its character. He has power that is not paralleled by anything else that we've ever seen or heard, the power of God himself, and its power that is marked by a character of giving, of sharing, of renewing, of serving. So let's take, in the time we have, let's look at his authority. As first we we realize there are competing authorities in our lives. Second, let's recognize Jesus' unique authority. And then third, let's consider how we respond to Jesus' authority. First, do you realize that there are competing authorities in your life? Now, this, this passage from Mark comes and gives you a stark example of it as it brings up unclean spirit, which in, in other uh, translations could be translated as, you know, it, the demons or, you know, agents of the devil. And someone says, really? Like, unclean spirit, demons, the devil, isn't that kind of an archa- archaic idea? And I would make the case to you, first of all, you know me. If you've listened to more than one sermon by me, you know that I'm not a, there's a devil under every rock and everything that goes wrong in your life is a demon. Not at all. But you would also be naive to fall off the other side of the road and say that there's nothing going on in the spiritual world in that area. As Shakespeare said, wrote in his play Hamlet, there are more things in heaven and on earth than are dreamt of in your philosophies. Maybe there's more going on. Now, some of you say, look, it's irrational to believe in these sorts of negative spiritual powers. And I would say, I, I think that, that that point of view has credence and logic if you are someone who considers yourself an atheist. And you say, there's no positive force in this world, there's no supernatural power, positive good in this world, there's no God, and there's also no negative supernatural force either. If that is your worldview, I will say, at least as far as this point is concerned, that holds in terms of its logic. But for the other 97% of you that at some, in some way or another at least believe in some sort of supernatural higher power, some sort of God or divine presence, is it that outlandish to believe that if there is a divine, supreme, good, supernatural being, that there's also some sort of negative, supernatural evil in this world? Now, I want to be careful because I'm not suggesting to you that God is on one side and the devil's on the other, and they are 50-50 and evenly matched. There is no meaningful balance of power between the goodness and power of God and the evil of the evil one. To say that, to say that there's a meaningful fight between God and the devil would be like saying there was a meaningful fight between Mike Tyson and me. If there was a fight, it ended a long time ago and it happened really quickly. But I also want to say, if this is true, you and I would be naive to say that there is nothing in terms of a personal, supernatural evil force at work in this world. As Kevin Spacey's character said in Usual Suspects, perhaps the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was making the world think he doesn't exist. Now, some of us say, look, they were primitive back then. They were more superstitious. They did not have a medical sophistication that we have today. So they were primitive to believe in demons. You know, ancient people didn't know about disease or mental illness or epilepsy. So they just kind of blamed all of these things on the devil, right? Like Bobby Boucher's mom and water boy. Foosball is the devil. Like everything that we can't, that we don't like is the devil. And here's the thing. We say that ancient people might have been more naive about these things. And that may may be the case with many ancient writings. 
but it's not true of the Bible. See, the worldview of the Bible is complex, multidimensional, and has a nuanced view of reality. For example, in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 4, when people are coming to Jesus to be healed, he actually differentiates between demon-possessed people from diseased people, people with mental illness. They know the difference between a physiological illness, a mental illness, and something more deep that's going on spiritually. See, today we want to look at it from just one perspective and narrow it down and isolate it. So some of us have a worldview that's more materialist, and we say, Just take a pill to take care of your troubles. Some of us look at it more psychological and say, you need to sign up for therapy with a good therapist to walk walk through all of your difficulties with you. Some of us have a worldview that's more legalistic, and we say, look, you need better strategies, habits, patterns. Just do better. And some of us with a worldview that's more superstitious say, there's a you know, everything that we can't explain is spiritual evil. But the Bible has a worldview that's far more nuanced and multidimensional than that, because it refuses to reduce our problems to a single plane. There's never a default mode that says, this must be only a moral problem. This must be only a psychological difficulty. This must be only mental illness or only spiritual disease. It rather sees them as interlocking and working in people's lives in different forms and different levels. And here's the point. If you don't see the complexity and what the Bible says about evil, the natural and supernatural, the individual and the communal, it's going to eat you alive. Are you aware that you actually have an enemy in your life? Now, can you see how this might help you make sense of your problems and struggles, especially their stubbornness, right? Because when we talk about the work of the evil one in our lives, We don't just talk about the egregious acts like genocide in Rwanda or what the Nazis did to the Jews in World War II and before. We talk about the more insidious parts, how the evil one does not show up with great fanfare and flame and fire and, and brilliance, but rather comes insidiously and slowly and kind of lulls you to sleep. That's why Jesus not only talks about beware of murder, which, of course, you're aware of murder. Beware of harboring hatred towards others because it grows really slowly, really silently. That's why the Apostle Paul writes, if you're proud, you could fall into the trap of the devil. Later, he writes to the church at Ephesus, if you are bitter towards others, then you fall under the influence of the evil one. You see, he says, don't only look for the big trees that are poking up above the soil. If it's gotten to that point, you've definitely missed the root system. But are you aware of the roots and the ways that evil is sown in your own life? Bitterness. Pride. Choosing to harbor and nurture resentment against others. These are the the soils in which the greater evils grow. Can you see how demonic forces might help us explain systemic social evil? And here's what I mean by that. Evil... Unjust social systems can reign in a society where the evil itself is so blatant and absurdly mean and cruel and violent, and yet when you zoom in on any individual in the system, they don't seem all that bad. I'm thinking about white South Africans in apartheid South Africa. 
I'm thinking about many Rwandans in the genocide of 1994 who got caught up into a sweeping genocide toward their neighbors. There's a guy named W.H. Auden. He was a great poet in World War II. Lived in Yorkville, which was a German town, in a German neighborhood in New York City. And he found uh, this major stream of Nazi propaganda in this German neighborhood. And there was a movie called Invade Poland. And he saw some of his friends on the screen, people that he knew. And in the midst of the audience, in his neighborhood, he saw his neighbors, people he knew who were good people, stood up and shouted, kill them, kill them. Auden was so shaken up, he lost his faith in atheism to account for this world. He said there must be some sort of deeper spiritual evil going on that can lead otherwise good men and women to perpetrate such evil. Unless he could have a belief in God and sin and demonic forces, he could not account for how relatively okay people got sucked in to the violence and such evil. Now, why is this important to grasp? It's impossible to count for all the evil in this world simply by attributing it to human factors, you know. They just made bad choices, or they just had a bad family upbringing, or this is just the result of inequitable distribution of resources, or this is just what happens when ignorant people act together. You see, if you look at any one of those angles or lenses, you have a shallow view of the complexity of human brokenness or of evil in this world. And as a result, you will supply superficial resources. We, as a community, will be giving a band-aid to a hemorrhage that goes deep into the soul of our society. And you'll be defeated by it. I think that's why scripture gives us an account of the evil one and the work of evil in this world that is not sensationalist and it's not used to drum up a bunch of fervor, but it's rather to say, do you realize that there are far, there's far more things that are happening in heaven and on earth than you dream of in your small philosophy. This text and others like it teach us that to the brokenness of this world, the best practices, the best technology, the best minds need to be applied. But they will never be sufficient to overcome it without the God who created us and is at work right now to redeem all things. And so the question is, is your worldview complex enough? Is your worldview multidimensional enough to account for the brokenness in your life, of the people in your life, of the world that we live in? And Mark, the gospel writer, as he reveals Jesus' early ministry is saying, you need a greater authority in your life. You can have relationship with the one who has authority over all. Realize that there are competing authorities. Now, the next step is to recognize Jesus' unique authority. So the question is, where, what is the authority in your life? It's not like Christians are the believers and they're the ones that believe in Jesus' authority and then the rest of society gets a pass on that question. Because if God is not the central authority of your life, someone or something else is. We've seen the result of this in our society now where nobody can agree on the facts or what we need to do about it, right? We live in the perfect confluence in our society. This is just me sitting, thinking about it, philosophizing, using a little bit of my uh, mass media communications under, undergrad degree. I had two undergrad degrees, just so you know, but, uh, but one of them. Um, 
but thinking we live in the perfect confluence for the perfect storm where on one hand we're in the wake of postmodernism that says nobody has the monopoly on absolute truth. Everybody is entitled to their own truth. So that's philosophically great ground. For now, technologically, we have the ability to, uh, to disseminate news not only from major credentialed kind of peer-reviewed type articles and things like that, but now someone can be in their mom and dad's basement starting a website and disseminate views as well. So we have a philosophy that says I can have whatever truth I want and a technology of news delivery that will give me whatever news I want to back that up. And now we can't agree on anything. So everybody has some sort of authority, is my point. I'm using the news as an example. But that goes deeper into how you live, what's important, what's going to give you meaning. The question is, are you aware of what the authority is in your life. Is it your friends? Have your friends ever given you bad advice before? Is it how you feel in in any given moment? I think this is so right. And then if you've lived long enough, you can reflect on your life and go, I remember when I thought that was so right. I was so wrong. As one friend told another in the recovery program, which in the 12 steps it's very important to give and receive sponsorship, he used to tell someone who didn't have a sponsor, if you're being sponsored by yourself, you're being sponsored by an idiot. (laughs) You need someone else to come along to give you wisdom, to help you walk, to give you accountability, to walk with you, all that. The question is, who's the authority in your life? And is it accurate? I saw this, and I'm going to name names here, not people's names. I'd never name people's names, but I'm naming Whole Foods' name. I'm taking on the man now that they're owned by Amazon as well. Um, Whole Foods over in Hillcrest. I was there earlier in the week, and I was waiting for my pickup to be dropped off in the trunk, and I'm sitting there, and I saw the, the employee who was in charge of checking people in. They do a good job of social distancing, and he had a fancy temperature you know, taker like we have at the back right over here, and he's taking people's temperature. So I got out of my car whole point is to not get out of your car. I got out of my car, and I went over, and I said, hey, would you just take my temperature? I'm just curious. He goes, well, it's actually for employees who are clocking in, but sure, you know, whatever. So I stand there, he takes my temperature, turns it to me. It's supposed to say 98.6, right? It says 83.3. And I say to him, either I'm dying or your thermometer is wrong. And he goes, yeah, it's broken. (laughs) Well, what are you using it for then? You have a thermometer that looks in good condition. It looks like it works. It has the little beep when it reads the temperature. It has a little LED screen that shows you the temperature. But it's completely inaccurate and broken. And it can actually lead to putting people in a situation that's very dangerous. I think that's a picture of life. You know, all of us look to some authority. All of us trust something to tell us that we're on the right track. We have the right information. We have the right north star or the right compass point. The question is, is it broken? How is it working for you? And we see Jesus' unique authority. Mark presents Jesus not just as having a new authority, but as being the authority. The crowd's response in verse 22 and 27 begins and ends with astonishment. Especially careful to note They were astonished at the authority of Jesus that was not like the scribes. The scribes were one of the religious authorities of their day that had used their authority to pump themselves up and to push others down. Jesus marches into sacred space, the synagogue, during sacred time on the Sabbath and displays his authority over all. And when Mark writes... He displayed his authority as one who has 
authority. That word in Greek is the same word that you know, we would translate authorship or author. What does an author do? They make something out of nothing. Their creation is the original stuff. Jesus has original authority, not derived authority. And here's what I mean by that. When the prophets of the Old Testament or the teachers of his time wanted to deliver the truth of God, they would start with, Thus saith the Lord. But when Jesus speaks, he would say, Thus I say unto you. He would say, You have heard it said, but I say unto you. Jesus is speaking the word of God as God. A new authority altogether. He didn't just clarify something they already knew or simply interpret the scriptures in the way teachers of the law did. His, li- his listeners knew that somehow he was examining the story of their lives as the author. And it astounded them. Which means that Jesus has intellectual authority. That to be a Christian means that we submit our ideas, our philosophies, our ideologies, and opinions to him. We see that he has authority to teach with his words. He speaks the word of God. He has authority with his actions to set people free. Here in the micro view, we see one man set free from bondage to this evil spirit, which then becomes a model for the way that Jesus seeks to set all of us free. And let's zoom in on that for a moment, that interaction with the unclean spirit or the demon. The demon asks, why do you meddle with us? Why do you mess with us, you of Nazareth, the Holy One of God? And most scholars think that what's happening there is a spiritual arm wrestling match of authority. Because back then it was known that to name something is to have authority over it. We see this in the story of Adam and Eve in the garden, given the great calling to be over all the animals and plants and to give each its name. If you can name it, you can subdue it. And so this unclean spirit is trying to defy and get power over Jesus, but very quickly moves from defiance to fear. (laughs) Jesus has power not only to teach, but to send out the evil and brokenness in our lives and in our world. And let's look at how he just did that. He uses no incantation, no hocus pocus or loud spell or big show, which would have been the custom of magicians and charlatans of his time. Just a couple of blunt words. Shut up and get out and it leaves Jesus doesn't call on a higher power to send out this unclean spirit because he is the higher power so what are the implications first the broad 120,000 foot view looking at all creation it means that the advent of the kingdom of God And the coming of King Jesus is the beginning of the end of the thraldom of Satan. A new era has dawned. He's begun dealing a death blow to death itself. 
And so even here, we see new creation inaugurated and begun in the midst of the old. And what is Jesus doing in his first hundred days? He's going after anybody who is oppressed, anybody who's pushed down, anybody who doesn't know the goodness and love and forgiveness and union with God, and he seeks to put an end to it. New creation birthed in the midst of the old. On the cross and in his resurrection, he will show that he has ultimate authority over death itself. The new creation has begun. The new creation is advanced in his death and resurrection, and the new creation will be completed when he comes again at the end of time to make all things new. And so now we are living in the overlap of kingdoms, what we call the already and the not yet. Then on one hand, the new king is at reign. Goodness and mercy flow, and at the same time, it's not full and completely consummated. And so we we still await with longing and groaning in the midst of disease and discord. We act and work and hope as ambassadors of that coming kingdom, even in our present context where we are right now. So what's an implication personally? Very personally, when Jesus comes as king, when he comes to say, are you aware of competing authorities? Are you aware I'm an authority unlike any other? He comes and asks you, who is the royal authority in your life? Because someone or something is. Christian friends, he comes and asks you and me, what kind of choices are you making right now that align with his kingly authority? What kind of choices are you making right now that deny his kingly authority? Realize there are competing authorities. Recognize Jesus' unique authority. And finally, respond to how he uses his authority. Now, I want you to hear this. Do not attribute to him this kind of authority in your life just because of his raw power. If you try to give him authority in your life just because of his power, you will either run from him or resent him. You give him this kind of authority in your life, not just because of his power, but because of how he uses his authority. See, the irony of this passage is, the people are all amazed and astounded at his authority, but no one really begins to understand who he is except for the unclean spirit. And even then, only partially. See, Jesus disarms Satan's power that has been pirating human souls and sets the victims free one by one. The demons therefore know him as the victorious one, who mu- but not as the one who must undergo suffering and death. What Jesus will do with his authority is what turned the world upside down. The fact that Jesus had authority in itself is not what turned the world upside down. What Jesus would do with his authority is what turned the world upside down. He gives the demon some words of direction, shut up and get out, and it leaves with a shriek, which previews another shriek that we will hear on the cross as he completed the healing work that he began that day in the synagogue taking all pain and brokenness and sin and death upon his own shoulders and dealing a death blow to death itself. See, the gospel is not about following good advice. It's about following a good king. 
It's not just someone with authority telling you all the things you need to do, but someone with power and authority doing all that needs to be done on your behalf and then offering it to you as good news. Jesus is saying, follow me because I'm the king you've been looking for. Follow me because I have authority over everything and yet I've humbled myself for you. Because I died on the cross for you. Because I bring you good news, not just good advice. Because I'm your true love. Because I'm your true life. Because when you submit yourself to my authority, you don't lose yourself. In fact, you begin to find out who you were created to become. Follow me. Friends, that's the invitation today. Renew church, that is our great invitation to see that authority, to choose to follow him, to walk with one another again and again as we find ourselves in that great ocean of his love. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we pray now as we hear the scripture and apply it to our lives that just as on that great day the people were amazed at your authority, on one hand we are a people who shun the idea of authority. We don't want anyone to be above us. We are the masters of our own destiny, the captains of our own fate. We want to say that we can take matters into our own hands and determine our future. And yet that leaves us anxious and exhausted. Help us to see that you not only have a unique authority, but you use it on our behalf. And break through to set us free, just as you did on that great day so many years ago. We invite you now to speak to us in a way that we would hear, and to give us courage to follow you wherever you would send us. We pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.